All right, cool. You good? Yes, sir. All right, let's go. Okay. Straight to you from Jackson Hole, Wyoming. Welcome to Permit to Think. Meaningful stories and conversations from the fringe of societal norms. I am your host, Mike Dawes. As a professional fisherman and host, I've spent the last 25 years traveling the far and near reaches of the world. In the beginning, the goal was untouched adventures and wild fish. But I've come to realize that the people I've met along the way and their stories have played a pivotal role in seeking what I'm truly after, a quiet mind and some time to think. This ride is too short, so I'm going to start exploring the narratives of the people that have brought me here. I have been told that audio has no rules, so it seems like a good platform for someone who grew up breaking them all. Let's go. Our guest today is Darren Calhoun. Darren was born and raised on the Wind River Indian Reservation. His family is represented by both tribes as his mother was a part of the Northern Arapaho tribe and his father a part of the Eastern Shoshone. Darren is currently an enrolled member of the Northern Arapaho tribe. Darren started Wind River Canyon whitewater and fly fishing with his father, Melvin Pete Calhoun, in 1992 and is currently operating in his 30th season on the Wind River, one of the finest trout fishing rivers in the world, in my opinion. Darren received a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Montana in 2005. It was around that time I first met Darren and experienced the Wind River on the reservation. I distinctly remember being shocked that Darren's company would only put one trip on a section of river per day and had done so since inception. Looking back now on the forward thinking, stewardship, and conservation of the resource, it is truly remarkable. The Wind River Reservation and its inhabitants continue to battle for the resource today as the history of the water rights, lack of change and balance, create a very messy picture. The story was recently highlighted in a film by Patagonia in conjunction with Teton Gravity Research and IndieFly. In the film, Darren reflects on the constant attack throughout the years on the water that is crucial to their way of life, culture, and history. The film lays out another forward thought, one in which there is hope that an outdoor-based, sustainable, recreational economy could flourish. Darren is additionally the author of the book titled Fly Fishing the Wind River Canyon and is the husband of and listens very closely and always agrees with his wife, Kristen Curlin, and is the exceptionally proud dad of Riley and Jalen Calhoun. Without further ado, please welcome my good friend, Darren, to the show. What's up, Darren? Not much, Mike. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for making the time. As, as we were just briefly discussing, the, uh, the One Fly weekend is, is a little bit of a whirlwind. Yeah, I mean, I had been here, it was years ago, for the auction and some of the surrounding events, but this is the first time I've ever participated in the One Fly as, a, as an angler, and it, it is a whirlwind. 
you know, you just don't realize until you're in it, like how much there is to do places to be things to do fishing, talking, and you're just go, go, go for two and a half days straight. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, I, I haven't been in it for a while. I've, um, always stay close to it. Love the event. Obviously like you and I talked about the conservation component of it is remarkable. Um, but I remember thinking like you get off the South Fork and you're like, I need to be where, when, like, isn't that, <laughs> like I was up at five o'clock this morning and I got to be back. Yeah. <laughs> but how did you keep your fly? So the first day I did not, I had, uh, started off great, caught a really nice hybrid, like a cut bow, 18 inches, probably 20 minutes in the event and turned a couple others. And I thought, okay, this is, this is my game, right? Like streamer fishing, (laughs) tailwater and caught a couple more fish, had a couple get off. And I just felt like, I just felt good. Like it was going to happen. And just made a, a kind of an errant event, made a cast. The line kind of got, you know, I wouldn't say away from me, but I had more line out than I should have. And I'm trying to turn and pick it up. And I see this fish come shooting out of the water. It was a big rainbow, 20 plus. Oh, and wow. all of a sudden, I mean, I just hear snap. and I'm, I'm But I don't feel any tension <laughs> on my end of my rod. And I'm like, what the? And I see the fly stuck in the fish's face. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's my fly. Because <laughs> he's like 10 feet from the boat. And I'm like flipping my leader up and down. I'm like, that's it. I'm out. Game oh, over. Wow. Like, dun, 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 yeah. right. and, and for everyone listening that's not familiar, the Jackson Hole One Fly, you, you choose one fly per day. Um, so, and if it starts, you know, 8, 8.30 in the morning and you lose it at 8.45, you are done. Um, what fly was it? Because we, we, Darren and I fished <clears throat> together on Thursday and we, were, we talked a little bit about some flies, but. Right. It was a sculpin, a little sculpin tied on a jig hook that the guide aj jorgensen recommended that morning and it was working I mean, fish were turning on it they were coming after it they weren't committing fully but you know that's streamer fishing um i had already caught a couple nice fish on it and had this big rainbow on and just it was yeah it was over luckily it wasn't at 8 30 it was, yeah. at, it was <laughs> but it was still way too early it was about 1 30 and the worst of it is about an hour later my boatmate who is a good friend of yours mike dawkins he said dude, I feel bad for you. The streamer fishing is starting to turn on because he was fishing a streamer too. And he caught several fish, nothing big, but he caught several fish late in the day. And all I could do was watch and throw a hopper. Yeah. <laughs> Out of the back of the boat. Out of the back of the boat and then, for no points. Yeah. And then <laughs> yesterday you... So yesterday I got to fish with Mike Jansen down in the whitewater section. That was fantastic. I've gotten. To, I've actually done that in the one fly, one fly before and it is fantastic. It, it, it's good. I, I enjoyed it. Um, did keep my fly all day, scored a moderate amount of points. I didn't get any bigger fish, but, but filled my card, had a great day, got to meet Mike. I'd always heard about him. Um, I'd fish with that guy again any day. He was, he was terrific and and it was fun being down there. Yeah. He's a real, he's a real pro. Um, well it's, um, it's, it's cool that you got to see it. I mean, you know, as a participant, I mean, yeah, I had floated it a lot when I, when I was a kid going to school at the university of Wyoming and living here, working at Teton village at the moose, I would, I had a roommate who was a whitewater guide. So I'd floated West table to sheep gulch. I don't know, hundreds of times. Right. And it's funny. That's, <clears throat> excuse me. 
that's actually where the idea to start Wind River Canyon Whitewater and fly fishing comes from. I was here working at the Moose. Took my my dad came over from the ranch in Crowhart, which is a couple hours east of here, and uh, just came over for the weekend, have dinner, hang out. We took him on a on a whitewater trip with with my buddy that was a guide. And on the bus ride back into Jackson, he said, "When you're finished in Laramie, let's start a rafting company on the reservation in Wind River Canyon." And uh, I remember instantly thinking, "Like, wow, that's great! Look yeah. at like look at how much money these rafting companies make." <laughs> <laughs> And we did, and it you know it it was tough the first few years for sure, no doubt. Not much whitewater traffic, hard to get people to fish with us because nobody really knew, yeah, what was there. And so that was in ninety two. That was in nineteen ninety two. And for the first couple of years, I mean, compared to now, would you say you're doing five percent of the business? I mean, it 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 couldn't be any different. Wow. It's, it's like, you know, people say night and day, which is sort of cliche, but it, but it really is night and day about four or five years in, I told my dad, I don't know if this is going to work. This might be the dumbest thing we've ever done. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Like nobody's coming through the door. And if nobody's coming through the door, that means no money's coming in. And you know, we, it's not like we weren't getting any traffic, but we, we were, we were just sort of floating, not, not making any progress and, and not fishing yet. Right. We were fishing, but again, it was just, was it a part of the whitewater trip or was it? No, they were separate. They were, we were separate. Okay. Fishing or whitewater, but we just weren't getting enough business. Mm-hmm. You know, it's sort of like you hang your shingle out, but nobody's, the phone's not ringing. Yeah. Pre-internet, pre-social. Right. Right. When the internet was first kind of getting, you know. And, and most people didn't have a website or, you know, it was yeah. pretty early on. And my dad had been ranching for quite some time at that point. And he really was looking at this, you know, at this business as similar to a ranch. Like, you know, you, you make it work. Like, you do what you can and you hope the next year's a little better. And if you have a setback, you you recalculate and, yeah. and you kind of build your way along. And if it weren't for his persistence, I probably would have stopped. Huh. Just because I thought there's other ways to 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 you know to make a living and 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 do something else, but he said let's let's give it a couple more years. And sure enough, th- this was probably four or five years. And I'd say in our seventh year, it it just kind of started to happen. People started showing up. The phone started ringing. The internet was starting to pop. We had a website. Our calendar wasn't full, but it was starting to you know book and. I met several key people that uh, were a big influence in helping me with the fishing program. And 10 years in, I was like, wow, we, we really should be paying attention to what if this really takes off? Let's let's make sure we're taking the best care of it that we can. Yeah, and, and that is, um, I, I, you know, like I said in the intro, I mean, it, it is, I, I, I do remember thinking that while I was doing, you know, a bunch of research before the show, I, I mean, which is always very cool for me. Sometimes, you know, it's not the best timing, but you know, I was looking back at my photos and I was like, when is the first time I went over there? Mm -hmm. Um, and it was probably, uh, 2003. I don't even think I have any photos from that somewhere there, 2000, 2003, but I do remember distinctly remember talking to you and being like, you, what do you mean you put one one boat <laughs> you know here i am in a totally different capacity right um you know for reasons we don't need to get into but I, I was having to i was having to grow and put you know do what i could 
Right. Um, and then I remember thinking like, wow, this is one of the best places I've ever fished. I mean, it, it took a while. It's, it's not like it doesn't, that place doesn't humble you. Right. Um, but when I saw it shine, I was, um, but do you, do you attribute that to growing up there? I mean, absolutely. And so people will often say, wow, that's so great that you're doing all this. And that's awesome that you do this, you do this, you do this. And, and look, we, my dad and I did make that decision, but it was, but it was an easy decision because that is part of who we are, right? Growing mm -hmm. up on the reservation, the Shoshone and Arapaho tribes signed a million acres into a roadless wilderness area before the wilderness, the U S federal wilderness act was ever passed. Wow. So there's always been this element of conservation. That's part of who we are, right? At, at wind river, the, 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 the tribes. And so it was a really easy decision to do that because I also know and, and knew at that time our outfitting code and, and regulations that we go by on the Wind River Reservation are also very conservation based. The tribes only put one permit in each area. For example, the South Fork drainage of Bull Lake, there's one outfitter that has that area, that wilderness area, and all those lakes and all those streams, one, right? That's been their policy since the 1979 1980 when they first developed outfitting regulations so that tribal members could become outfitters and 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 it's all fishing there's no hunting outfitting but nonetheless it's still very very conservation oriented yeah share the resource but we absolutely have to protect it this is all we have left yeah and so it wasn't a tough decision now economically yeah. that's a different story because like you're suggesting and other people did you know other really good friends of mine said look that's a cool idea, but man, I don't know if, I don't know if it's going to work. My thought was always fishing wise. I don't really care if that works or not. I'm not going to do it any different where I think the cash flow for this business could, could keep us moving is with the whitewater trips because you don't have to, I mean, what are you hurting floating 10 boats down the river? If yeah. You're not doing anything other than floating. That's where we could kind of keep the cash flow moving. And then maybe eventually we, kind of move into a different space with the fishing and have a fly shop and all those things, which we didn't have at the outset. And luckily knock on wood that has worked. Yeah. Um, over time it's worked and, and people have, have, have respected and, 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 and paid a lot of attention to the fact that, that that's been our goal is to have that resource protected. Yeah. And, and I, we'll, we'll get into it. I mean, I, I, I do, I think it's, it's remarkable. Like I said, I think it's deeper than that too. At least I get the sense of that. You know what I mean? Like the, um, the reservation and the fact that all, you know, that in your upbringing, all things are connected in that sense in regards to water. Absolutely. So, but it's, you know, it, it, it is remarkable. And, and the foresight is the remarkable thing because it's one thing you know i mean it seems like we live in a world of all right it's fucked up now now let's, what can we do instead of <laughs> like right let's, right let's, we must <laughs> just go with it <laughs> yeah, exactly um but it, it is also amazing that the you know your what an incredible lesson from your dad like you know to to pull back and recalibrate and pull some different levers and and keep try trying it until it goes i mean right right yeah, his his ability to see that that there was serious potential there was, 
I mean, it was clearly about trying to make some money. So the, the, it's not like the dollars weren't a figure, but, but I also think he wanted a way for me to, you know, be integrated into the community, um, and for the long term. And what I mean by that is, I mean, I clearly am a member of, of the community, but he had been ranching since he was just a little kid. And he knew, I mean, I, I, he knew I loved to fish. And so I think he just saw, Hey, this is an opportunity where we could have a, have a business that could be successful. And it would also be something that fits who Darren is, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And so I think a lot about that <clears throat> when, when I think about what, what his idea probably was back then in terms of involving me in something that would keep me there. If that makes sense. Oh, it makes complete sense. And also, you know, while I was doing some research yesterday, I was just completely, you know, um, struck by, I don't know where I found it, but I, I found an interview or another piece that you did. Um, I think it was a video actually, uh, not, not the film, which we'll talk about, but a, a smaller piece that, um, or maybe it was an article. I, I can't remember. It's all bleeding. <laughs> right. But um, where you talked about how Willow Creek ran, ran through your property growing up and that you were allowed to play in the creek, but you weren't allowed to go down to the big wind until, um, you know, your your father saw it fit for, you know, that you were, you knew, you knew your way around the property and you were, and so you know, eventually he said to you, all right, you know, now, now it's time. And so, you know, he, he taught, it sounded like taught the power of the river. And again, this goes back to the whole, you know, maybe some, some of the foresight, but it, I don't know. I, th- I thought it was very cool. Yeah. That was in a film that we did with uh, a short video we did with Brickhouse Creations, uh, on the upper wind mm-hmm. and, uh, the producer, David Thompson and I were talking about that and he said, you know, you grew up here and we were talking about all those things. And I said, yeah, I mean, you know, Willow Creek runs right through our ranch and I fished it all the time when I was a little kid. And, and I always knew that there were bigger fish down in the river, but my dad was like, that's, that's off limits for you. You know, I'm talking about like young when I was seven, eight, nine years old. Sure. And finally, as I started to grow and get big enough and, and he had shown me around enough. I mean, our place isn't gigantic, but you know, there's a couple hundred acres of cottonwood forest and creek crossings and and he knew that was no place for me to go adventuring by myself at the age of nine without getting myself in trouble potentially yeah there's some great wisdom there and it it you know it's it's not exactly similar but there's a theme in there where i mean I, i i remember distinctly my grandfather and my father leaving to go fishing and they would be like, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, I'm coming with you. And they're like, no, you're not. Like, get, <laughs> exactly. you're, you need to practice. I mean, they, they made me cast. Right. And they're like, just keep casting. And then some, you know, someday we'll, you'll get the nod. And I remember when I got the nod, it was, I don't know, but I, I found it very cool. And, and I feel like something I could do a better job of personally as a parent. Right. Because, um, but um, before we... Um, I, I obviously, I mean, I, I watched the film again yesterday and it really is amazing. I mean, you, you guys, everyone did an incredible job. I feel like it's one of those films. I mean, you know, it's a good film when you watch it once and then you're like, what is, 
you know, I need to watch that again. And I'll probably watch it, you know, I think I've watched it three times now and I'll probably watch it again, but you know it's it's well done when you when you need to keep going. But one thing that I I always mean to ask you about and never seem to get to, and now I've got now that I've got you here, um, is in regards to your PhD in, in clinical psychology. Is is that something you knew you were always interested in, or is that something that came about in your studies or so I remember early on as a kid thinking, you know, we all grow up with a complicated background and history and family. And, and I remember thinking like, gee, I wonder if there are kids who wonder about stuff like I'm wondering about at the age of 10, you know, cause my family life was really good early on, but then it got really tumultuous and my parents got divorced and and I thought, gee, I, I think I want to. I think I want to be able to be a counselor. I mean, I didn't know what a psychologist was back then, at ten, eleven, twelve years old. But um, I started thinking about it back then. And then, of course, you know, you're junior high and high school and school and sports, and you're just kind of busy and preoccupied. And but in high school, I got the chance to take a psychology class. One semester was sociology, the other semester was psychology, and I really liked it. And I thought, when I go to University of Wyoming, because I knew that's where I wanted to go from the time I was just a young kid. And high school was in? Riverton. Riverton. I went okay. to high school in Riverton. I started at Wind River and ended up finishing in Riverton. Uh, just a better fit, and, and I felt like it was going to prepare me better to go on to, to college. So I took this this sociology, psychology class in high school. Really enjoyed it. The sociology class, I was like, eh, but the psychology class I found very interesting. So I majored in psychology at the University of Wyoming, got a bachelor's degree there. And of course, everybody was telling me again, I've always had this unsolicited advice my whole life about everything I do. <laughs> you know, you shouldn't get a degree in psychology because you're going to have to go to graduate school. And I was like, yeah, I, I mean, I know that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I finish up, my dad and I start this business, finish up at the University of Wyoming. That is, we start this business and, and we're doing it for a few years. I got a great job at Central Wyoming College. I was the director of the Native Studies program uh, and thought, wow, I'm set this, you know, maybe the, the business will start to work. I've got an academic schedule and, um, maybe I won't go to graduate school after all. Sure enough, literally less than a year later, I get an offer to go to the university of Montana and attend in the PhD in clinical psychology program. Well, and I was like, well, CWC is great. The business is starting to pick up a bit. Things fit, but this isn't, this is an unprecedented opportunity. Why would I not do this? And I, and I was offered a fellowship, so basically oh, wow. full funding for five years. So anyway, long story short, I jumped at it, did it. A year in, I was like, oh my God, what did I get myself into? <laughs> uh, graduate school is so much different, right? Small classes, tons of reading, like excruciatingly hard work. Writing a 20-page paper, it feels like every week. And I was like, oh my God, I might have made the worst decision of my life. Yeah. But again... <laughs> I went back to my dad and I said, Hey, I, I don't know about this. And he said, you got to give it a couple of years. Like, you know, you've done one year. Keep, keep going. Give, give it your best. Sure enough. Then the second year I was like, I can do this. You know, and I started to kind of find my groove in Missoula and find a place I fit in and, and ended up finishing up. And so, so yeah, back to your original question. I, I had been interested in psychology from an early age and it sort of fostered and developed as I went through my studies and, once you get to that level of training in psychology, you realize you, you, you have to find your, your specialty or your area you really want to work in. <clears throat> and I found 
health psychology or behavioral medicine to be the area of interest for me, working with people who have chronic health conditions, diabetes, heart disease, <clears throat> excuse me. And so I was, I was kind of off to the races with my master's thesis and then my PhD dissertation research. And, <clears throat> and so now that's my area of focus. Although given all that's happened in, in my life in the last few years, I just have sort of taken a step back. I still have my license active, but I'm not currently working in research or clinical practice just because I have other priorities for now. But I do keep my license active because I, I do want to be able to, to return to that work at some point. Absolutely. And and I had to look it up, but the 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 difference, I mean, it, you know, I know it's deeper than this, but just to sum it up, the difference between clinical psychology and psychology is more of the the study of mental disorders compared to <clears throat> you know discussing the stressors in one's life right i mean is that kind of correct the... so yeah so clinical so psychology in general is a, is a big field as you're alluding to clinical psychology can be a lot of different things but for me the clinical part was what i was really looking towards most clinical psychologists choose to do research or practice so they either see patients in a medical setting or a mental health clinic, or they, or they do research their faculty at university and they research their specialty in their area. And, and I've done both. I enjoy both, but yeah, clinical psychology is the, is the specialty that is working in some capacity with people directly, either through research or clinical, clinical practice yeah. versus the field of psychology. So say learning and memory is part of psychology. It's people who work with rats or uh, mice or, or chimps and and um, study behavior patterns, learning, memory, things like that. So psychology as a field is very broad. Mm-hmm. So yeah, clinical is, is is one direction. And for example, my wife, who as you spoke about earlier, I listened to very closely, <laughs> happy wife, happy life. She's a clinical neuropsychologist. Oh, wow. So she studies uh, and practices all matters around cognition. So traumatic brain injury epilepsy, dementia, <laughs> right? So she does all these cognitive tests with her patient population to see what the impact on their memory, their thinking, their critical decision-making, those kinds of things. That's that's her specialty is clinical neuropsychology. So again, it's another sort of subspecialty of psychology in general. And with all of the, the recent... Um you know, reinterest, I guess would be the right word in <clears throat> psychedelics and certain components of that. Has that come to, to you or Kristen? I mean, in terms of, I mean, is it, are you feeling that or is it still kind of out there? No, I think, well, in particular, let's take marijuana, for example. When I was at the VA in Phoenix, which is where I did my, my clinical internship, I felt like I learned a valuable lesson. Well, I learned many valuable lessons from the veterans that I worked with, but one of the most interesting and most powerful lessons I feel like I learned was the what the medicinal use of marijuana could mean for people with long-term health conditions. Mm-hmm. PTSD, for example, right? Post-traumatic stress disorder <clears throat> is a huge issue in the VA population. And I would have patients tell me like... I. I come and see my doc and I go through the appointments and I, I do my checkups and stuff and I get all these medications and, and I don't take them. <laughs> and I said, well, tell me more about that. Why don't you take them? Well, because I hate them. They make me sleepy. They make me constipated. They make me this. They make me that. 
And then they would end up saying the thing that helps me the most is to just smoke marijuana Mm -hmm. or, you know, take it somehow, put it in brownies or whatever and use it as edibles because I can sleep. It doesn't, it doesn't make me feel like I'm walking around with molasses on my feet and all these other descriptors. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting because I mean, look, as a college student, I partied and drank and was around plenty of people who smoked pot and I was never really into it. But I never really realized the power that it has as a natural remedy, right? In the to context, help people. yeah, the context in which I mean, it's a completely different lens, right? I mean, absolutely. If you're looking at it from the party scene, you're that's all you're going to get, right? Um, if you look at it from a, a strictly medical, you know, and I. I I, I say this firsthand just because I, you know, I, I read Poland's book and went straight to the jungle, you know, for, a, right, right. for and, and I've, and, and that, that part of the equation is, is so, I mean, I, I had done psilocybin, you know, in college mm-hmm, or, mm-hmm. or whatever, but by no means had I ever done homework, um, identified issues that I have for me, anxiety has always been an issue and you know really attempted to you know look at that issue via this plant and there's no way now i could ever even relate the two right i mean there's just no they're not even it can't even come up in the same topic and to to, i guess to take it a step further (laughs) i'm afraid to even look at it in the party realm right now so I have two young kids and they both have, you know, in Arizona, there was the, the ballot initiative about legalizing recreational use. And my oldest son, Riley said, dad, what do you think about this? And I said, look, I'm not a, and I never have been. And, and I wasn't just saying this as a parent to try to deter him because he's going to make his own decisions. I mean, he's 16, but I said, I, I've never really been a pot smoker. And yet I know the power behind marijuana for medicinal purposes. I absolutely 110% think we should be studying marijuana at a much broader, much more intensive pace as, as researchers, because I know the power to help people medically is there. As far as the recreational use, you know, it, 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 it feels hypocritical to be like, no, we can't do it because, because we allow people to drink alcohol. Now, alcohol is the most abused, <laughs> right? Exactly. Worst substance in the world. Yeah. And, and yet people are like, well, we can't let people smoke pot. They're going to eat a bunch of Doritos. Like, like, come on, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we have to think about this. And so are people, are, are some people going to abuse it? Absolutely. Are some people going to use it and, and not go to work? Absolutely. But we hope that that's a small fraction, right? Yeah. Because the power of this, I don't even like to refer to it as a drug, but for sake of conversation, the power of this drug in being able to help people, I think, is immense. Absolutely. And if we're not studying it, and if we have this sort of ban on it in our minds, like you cannot, we can't let everyone turn into a pot smoker that's just not going to happen. And we're missing the boat on how helpful it could be to a group of people who don't find relief in other ways. Yeah. And I mean, my wife sees people with epilepsy right? it's part of her job. I mean, epilepsy is one of those things that they really have to do a lot of cognitive testing to try to help people figure out what's going on with, with 
you know, the way this is impacting their memory or their ability to think or concentrate. And she's said, you know, people tell her that the, the anti-epileptic drugs don't work. (laughs) Um, but the thing they find relief from is smoking marijuana. (laughs) I mean, this is anecdotal again, which is not scientific, but, but look, if you're around for this stuff for long enough, you know that there's something there. And then this plant's been around for as long as we have. Yeah, right. exactly. And and when you when you take away all the stigma, right, surrounding and the history, it's a plant. Exactly. And so, again, th- one thing that's been lost on us is what can plants do? So, I, I, <laughs> I no, you're 100% right. One of the things that's frustrating for me when I see things about the, the marijuana argument, let's call it the marijuana argument, is... The fact that, as you're saying, it's a plant. So indigenous peoples around this planet have figured out for thousands of years, literally, that there are plants that have medicinal value. And there are times when people in the scientific community have, you know, discovered with quotes around it that certain plants have certain medicinal values, and yet the indigenous perspective is always ignored. There's an author, uh, very well read, widely known, uh, particularly in within the American Indian community and in, in the academic community in general, Vine Deloria Jr. What's his name? Sorry, Vine Deloria Jr. Vine Deloria Jr. And some of the books he has written are, you know, like God is Red. I'm just several writing, others. I'm just writing this down. Yeah, no, you should read some of his stuff. It's great. But anyway, he makes the point that some researchers were fascinated to find out that bears would chew on willows, particular willows at certain times of the year. And so they get these willows and they, they realize that the, in the bark of the willow is a chemical compound, very similar to aspirin. (laughs) And so these bears are chewing on these willows probably because they're experiencing some pain and they find relief from that. Right. Yeah, getting and rid so, of the toothache. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean. So, but and that's one tiny example. Yeah. And if you think of marijuana in that perspective, there are people who have been using marijuana for thousands of years because it helps. Sure. Right. Yeah. And so and, there's and, tons and, of examples like and that it's out not, there. It, you know, it's not like it's for everyone. And as a parent, right? I mean, for me, it's simple. Like, you know, when it comes up with my kids eventually, which it will. Right. Like let your brain develop. That's the bottom line. Right. And then, you know, whatever. I mean, you know, not whatever, but I mean, yeah, look at it in a different way. But but I feel like that whole I mean, the bear and the willow thing. I mean, it seems like technology is stunting that to me. And and the reason why I say that is what's what's very interesting to me is when I do get to go on these trips and I literally just turn my phone off for you know all all day every day day after day um my ability to for instance realize what time it is Mm -hmm. is amazing right if my phone is on and i'm constantly looking at my phone i don't know what time it is right right i mean i know when i look right but i'm not paying attention to what's what's around me and i don't know maybe maybe that's a too much of a deep jump there but but i do think i think it's sad to me that you know the example of the bear and the willow that 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 is getting lost oh i i couldn't agree more i think you're you're 
your direction that you're taking with, with, you know, technology. Um, I experienced some health issues the past few years, as you and I've discussed and, and really sort of tried to refocus my, my attention and my efforts in getting myself back into some reasonable physical condition. And one of the things I've noticed is through the process of, of, of trying to get in shape is you should not eat by the clock. <laughs> if you're not hungry, who cares if it's 12 o'clock? <laughs> Don't eat, right? It's not lunchtime if you're not hungry. Exactly. Uh, if you get up in the morning and you go for a walk or you go for a run or you jump on your mountain bike and go for 45 minutes and you come home, you don't automatically need to sit down and eat breakfast if, unless you're hungry. Exactly. Like just basic things like that. We have lost that. There's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. And I've brought this up before and, I, and you know, I think this is an extreme example of it. Um, but you know, to make a long story short, there was a non-celestial navigation, you know, art in the Marshall mm-hmm. Islands and they were referred to as remettos and they could we they could read waves and they could get from one part of the Marshall Islands to the other, like, you know, hundreds of miles away mm-hmm. um, just by reading waves. So they didn't even need a clear sky. And the New York Times documented this where, you know, they were trying to get, you know, it had not been passed down because no one was interested in it anymore. And then it just died. It's done. Right. Um and take that to plant medicine, to, you know, things that are around us to, I mean, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's mind boggling to me that, 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 you know, some of that stuff can be going away. Right. Well, one of the things I found interesting in my, my life in, in academia versus, the you know, the, let's call it the more real world growing up on the reservation is the fact that if it isn't documented and written down somewhere in the scientific world, then it doesn't exist, (laughs) which I have some respect for because of my training and and knowing how powerful research is and how you be able to be able to, to document that, 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 that happened and that it's, that it's true or at least supported is a better way to put that. But I also have my upbringing in my culture, in my community and I know that just because it's written down doesn't necessarily mean that it's supported because that ignores the indigenous perspective or the indigenous way, if you will, which is oral history and stories. And so yeah. people think like, well, that's all like, you know, ritualistic. and But that's confusing to me because it's dismissed because it's not written down. Like that's not, that's not right. That's not fair. Yeah. Because some of these folks in not only at wind river, but around the whole planet who are in these indigenous populations, they know some of the most profound foundational things like the story you're just telling about the waves and ability to navigate, but that is being lost because it's because it's not supported. Right. And it's ignored and it's not being passed down. Our language is a perfect example. Both the Shoshone and the Arapaho have distinct languages. And there, there's a lot of efforts underway now to protect and preserve those languages and to teach the young kids and to keep it going. And that's great because our language is is part of who we are. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And so some of those stories and traditions of 
how to navigate or how to get places at certain times of the year, what, what things you, you should be looking for if you're trying to gather herbs and plants and you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And, That's and, all part of that story. Yeah. And the other thing that comes to mind when, when you talk about the oral part of it um, and the stories being passed down is, I mean, who, who's to say, right. That, that whoever, you know, pick a particular story that, that that story doesn't mean different things to one individual at different stages of their life. Right. Absolutely. And teach different lessons. So if it's just written, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I get the sense there's, there's probably more value in it than, <clears throat> than a campfire story for, for all stages, you know. Absolutely. I'll give you a, here's, here's one little example that I feel like was a great reminder again from, from my dad. I was working on my master's thesis research while I was a graduate student. <clears throat> Excuse me. My master's thesis was looking at fatalistic thinking in relation to diabetes amongst Native Americans. And in particular, I did this study at home at Wind River. So in a nutshell, I was wanting to know, do people in our community see diabetes in a fatalistic manner? Because we have so much diabetes. Mm-hmm. Do people think it's just sort of inevitable? Like, I'm going to get it no hmm. matter what. Because my family has it. My mom has it. My dad died from it. My this, my that, my grandma. Right? Like, it's because it's everywhere in our community. So I did this study. And as I was writing up the results, I was talking with my dad one night. And I was talking about how <clears throat> it looks like there's probably some support for this notion that fatalist, that people do think about diabetes fatalistically. Hmm. And he said, well, <clears throat> that might be the case. But don't forget this, as you sort of write up your conclusion and in, in, in your description at the end of your of your paper, that the Shoshones at least believe in what what, what what's basically thought of as a winter kill. That it's okay that some of us pass year to year because that keeps the tribe healthy. And it's our duty to to, to go to the next world. And so if you think about that, it's like, well, does that, does that affect whether or not people see something fatalistically? And I think, you know, there's, there's two different concepts at play there, but, but that was a good reminder of my dad to keep, keep your cultural perspective as you write this. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting again, because it's one of those things that had he not taught me about that in that moment. I wouldn't have written that into my paper, but I ended up writing it in at the end saying, you know, for some cultural perspective, here's, here's a thought that if the Shoshone believe in a, in a winter kill, that is not everybody's going to live through every winter. Um, you know, cause we, a, a good friend of mine said, none of us are getting out of this alive. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so we're all going to go at some point. Yeah. So I guess that, that gave me a, a different thought process about fatalism as maybe more so as it relates to death than, than the, whether or not you, you, you know, you become a person afflicted with diabetes, but still. Yeah. And, you know, there's, and there's probably some external there. factors there too. Right. Where, I mean, you know, it, probably when that came about, you know, preservatives and food and, and that stuff didn't exist. So does that accelerate, you know, absolutely a portion of it. So, I mean, but the, the concept behind it in, in you know, in your culture is amazing. My, my, paternal grandmother so my dad's mother said to me one time when i was a young kid 
you know, we don't live like we used to. And I said, what do you mean, Grandma? And she said, nobody gardens. Not as many people hunt as they used to. And she just went on to sort of give me this lesson in how a life well lived is, isn't running to town every time you have $5 in your pocket to have a hamburger. Mm-hmm. And she said, but that's what's starting to happen to us. And she meant collectively like our whole community. And another person who participated in my dissertation research, who was a, is a very respected elder on, on the Arapaho side, told me of, as a very similar story. He said, we, and speaking collectively about the Arapaho community, you know, we used to be like, like antelope or greyhounds, lean, and we could run and we could walk. And, and that's not the case anymore. He said, we have too many people in our community that are getting too heavy and that our diet is poor. And, but I look at that again, that lesson from both my grandma and this, this other elder on the other side, on the Arapaho side, as cultural oppression. <clears throat> and what I mean by that is they were describing a time when we had the ability to do those things more so. And then the introduction of the commodity foods, the high fat, high salt, poor nutritional value. And and you, if you look at the American Indian population, you see a group of people whose lifestyle was really turned upside down in a generation or less um, and fed this terrible diet and subject to these stressful conditions d- d- daily and permanently. You got the perfect recipe for, for diabetes to be happening because you're going to get weight gain. You're going to get lack of exercise. You're going to get all these things that you don't want. And you're going to get exposure to a, a, a food stuff. I will call it sugar and other things that are not, not good for us at an unprecedented level. And so you've got this lifestyle that's completely changed and, and you add all the stress and you know, you know, the stress hormones like cortisol are constantly flowing. Of course we have tons of chronic disease now. Yeah. And I would add also maybe to the cultural oppression, the constrainment, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, it was, and this is probably a great, you know, natural transition into, into the film, but you know, one, one part of the film that I found amazing was, I think, I think you, you or someone else in the film was like, well, you know, we, we were formed and we're here before Wyoming was ever a state. Right. I mean, and that, that just, you know, so that, so on the topic you're talking about, like, you can't just leave and chase where the animals are. Because then you need to go get a Wyoming tag or, you know what I'm saying? I mean, right, like, right. that's just a small example, obviously. But right. Um, so I guess that's what I mean in terms of constrainment. No, absolutely. I mean, I think the idea of constrainment in, in putting Native people on a reservation has been terrible. Someone asked me recently, I was a fishing client, do you think reservations have been good? overall for, for, for Indian people. <clears throat> and I said, that's a great question. And here's what I would say about that. If the federal government had lived up to their responsibility and the, and the promises they made and the treaties that they signed and all the things they said they were going to do, I think the reservations would have been a smash success <laughs> because essentially what you were doing was giving equal footing status to each other 
So, so folks will often say, well, the, the government gave you guys this or gave you guys that. And, and I have to constrain myself because I get <laughs> fired up. Right? And I say, look, the federal government never gave us anything. They recognized us as an equal. Sovereignty was supposed to be this notion that there was two governments that were going to respect each other. And they were going to, you know, say, this is your area. We, we recognize that. So say at Wind River, that's the area that was going to be ours. And the encroachment and the breaking of the treaties and the failure to come through with, with the provisions that were promised in these trades and these deals. And I mean, none of that happened. Yeah. And so of course they've, there's been constant struggles and they're ongoing. Yeah. So yes, I think they could have been a huge success. Have they been a challenge because that didn't happen? Absolutely. So back to the health issue and the diabetes and those kinds of things, same thing. I mean, if people had been allowed to continue to live and hunt and fish and, and been that been supplemented with tools for farming and, and ranching for, for tribal members who were interested, who were, would have been interested at the time, it would have been great. Yeah. That's not what happened. Well, it does seem like there, you know, humanity as a whole, right? Like that there is a recent push for, you know, maybe paying a little more attention to where the food is coming from and and hopefully that continues i mean I, yeah i agree and, and I, I hope it continues too and I, I think it's important i think we all need to think about that we've we've become so globalized and and look i know that that's not ever going to stop but you know if you if you know if you have an idea at least where the, where the food came from and the fact that it's not full of everything right? That's not, that's not good for you. I think that's a step in the right direction. I think that when we stop and think about it, there's some pretty simple elements that are, that are missing in, in the, you know, collection of food and, and the use of food. But we all get caught up in trying to save time and do what's yeah. quick. And, and as a parent, I, I struggle with that all the time. I mean, I'm busy doing things and before I know it, it's time to you know get the kids to soccer practice and nobody's had anything to eat since 10 o'clock this morning and yeah. it's 530 <laughs> in the evening. And so it's like, well, let's just hit in an out burger. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Yeah. But I try hard not to, not to be that way, even though I, I clearly am that way a lot of times out of just sheer convenience and, and, and lack of time or yeah. lack. That's probably not a good way to put that. Lack of planning is probably a better way to put it. Right. <laughs> yeah. To- and it's also, I mean, you know, for me, and, and my kids are, you know, arguably too young for this con- conversation that I have with them, but they're, I'll never forget it. They were like, well, you, you know, you killed this. And I'm like, yeah, it's right here. And they're like, that's disgusting. And they're <laughs> yeah. like, like, mom, can we just have a regular steak? I'm yeah. like, Where do you think <laughs> that comes from? And there's, there's a disconnect, you know what I mean? Right. Because I haven't done a, a, a good enough job at, you know, trying to, but, you know, like you said, I mean, time and, but I am trying to do a little bit, you know, right. at least so that it's memorable. I mean, we, you know, grabbed some stuff out of the greenhouse last night. I've never had a greenhouse before and trying to do a little bit of that and talk to them, at least even having the conversations right, um, is a help, but it's, um, it's not easy. No, it's not easy. My, my oldest son was mad because I said, you know, I, I haven't been back in on the reservation in the fall to go hunting in a long time. Cause we spend the winters in, in the Phoenix area 
and he said, Dad, why, why would you want to go hunting? And I said, because I, you know, I like to eat elk meat. Mm-hmm. And I said, you like elk. Remember how much you enjoyed those elk burgers when we were at Carrie Sprouse's this summer? And he's like, yeah, but that, that elk was already dead. I'm like, yeah, how'd you think it got that way? <laughs> <laughs> because exactly. somebody killed it and took it. And I've been trying to teach both my boys because they're growing up away from the reservation, <clears throat> which in my heart I don't like because I know they're not learning some of the things they need to learn, right? about our culture and, and, and our family. And I think that uh, it's my job as their dad to, to bring the best of that to them that I can, even though they're clearly not growing up in Crowheart like I did or, you know, around Fort Washakie or, and so I, you know, I want them to, to learn those things and, and whether or not they're into hunting is irrelevant to me. It's, it's, I still want them to, to get that knowledge and get that exposure um, it's, it's tough to do. I'm sure it is. I I would, I would have to guess though, that, you know, in those conversations that you do have with them, that it will at least plant a seed where they will, it will come full circle. I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I, I mean, I, it's a guess, but, but I would, you're, you're absolutely right. And I do think that's why I try. Mm-hmm. Right. That's why I do the best I can at telling them, you know, what is a sweat lodge or why do the Arapaho do this? Or what about the Shoshones and that? And I, I try the best I can. And without being in the environment, it's, it's, it's more of a challenge than, than, than I would like, but, but I still, I still keep going. And but they still get some time. Like you said, I mean, they, that was a pretty funny story when you were like, <laughs> Why, why isn't the fishing always like this when you, when you took them out? Yeah, so I took them recently, and yeah, we the, <laughs> the dry fly fishing in the canyon was just off the charts. There were cicadas, and and you know we get in the boat, and I'm rowing, and I'm barely explaining things, and Jalen, you know, throws a cast ten feet from the boat, and fish eats it, and he's like, Dad, I already got one, <laughs> and the whole trip was like that, right? And so, yeah, we get done, and they're like you know, why isn't the fishing always like that? And I was like, well, because we'd all quit because we'd be bored. Exactly. Like you guys just caught like 30 fish that were 18 to 23 <laughs> inches in like four hours. Um, so yeah, it's great. And, and we spend a fair amount of time in, in Wyoming for sure. In the summers, we spend usually the first half of the summer, usually from first part of June until the middle of July, we're, we're in Wyoming. And you know, my dad passed away last fall. Now that that he's gone, I feel like it's even more important that I spend more time teaching them about the ranch that I grew up on that my dad left to me and, and, and the business. And, you know, we went to uh, the Shoshone days powwow this year and, and we try to go to that to every, every year. This wasn't the first year, but, but I'm, I, I'm really trying to immerse them in a way of life that will escape them if they're never exposed to it. Do you need to be an enrolled member to, to go to that? No, no. no. No, the, the, the ceremonies that we have, there's very few that are restricted to like sort of, you know, an exclusive club of, of, of enrolled members, sweat lodge ceremonies, non-tribal members are often invited to the powwows are often open to the public. Well, not often. They're always open to the public. Even the Sundance, which is one of our most powerful ceremonies is, is open for viewership. You know, you're not supposed to take a camera or, or video or audio recording of it, but, but you can certainly go attend and watch. And those are powerful reminders to people who are, are, are um, who are not part of our community that not only are we still here, we're still practicing our culture and passing it on, and it's still a very big part of who we are. 
Yeah. And, and I wrote down um, in, you know, in some notes, there, there was a quote in, in the movie, um, Tribal Waters, um, you know, and, and we're, you know, to sum it up and, and you, you probably could do it better than I, but it's, it has a lot to do with the in, in stream flow, you know, on the wind river. Right. Um, and you know, the history behind that, which is a messy picture, um, you know, I, I'm not going to corrupt maybe in, in is a good word that seems to come to me, but there was a great, um, subject that came up was, you know, where our, our people think that this river has a spirit. Mm-hmm. So how do you deal with that in your ag water rights? Well, it's interesting that <clears throat> that quote is in the film and it's, uh, it's from Wes Martell, who's a member of the Shoshone tribe. He's been on the tribal council. He's, he's done a lot of things. He's worked in the tribal engineer, water engineer's office, been on the tribal water board. Wes is a, is a true he's a leader in our community has been for a long time. And, um, his quote is, is a, is a reminder that there's more to this to us as the Shoshone and Arapaho tribes than whether or not we have enough water to grow alfalfa, right? Because water is this integral part of, of who we are and, and that we believe that the river has a spirit and that we're all interconnected. And it's hard to think about, you know, the, the, the subject matter in tribal waters is about this water that's ours that we're that we're really prohibited from using in the way that we want to use which you know at a very just basic level is is just unjust and unfair and i think that when when people think about how much water there is from the wind river drainage that should be able to be used by the tribes how we see fit it's infuriating right because we've been told by this group of white people that sit on a bench so the Wyoming Supreme Court that we're restricted in how we can use water that was supposed to be ours it just doesn't make any sense yeah, and it's and, illogical. And you were quoted in in there saying, "Show me the economics behind this, and I'll show you it doesn't work." Right. When it comes to only looking at, you know, the water from an ag bureau of rec standpoint, right? Absolutely. And it's funny because I always drive around and I wonder that as well. Um, but you know, just just to back up a second. When I, I was always a little bit confused and then um, I have a little more clarity. You probably can provide more in just researching the reservation in itself um, prior to the show that, you know, because you have the Arapahoes, Shoney's, but then Crowheart. Mm-hmm. And so the Crows, obviously. So it seemed in, in what I was reading that, you know, at one point it was more than just um, those two tribes. Is that it seemed like it was a little bit of a melting pot at a time. So the crows used to come into this area. I mean, a lot of tribes did pass through you know, the area. But the crows would come down from southern Montana, and they would hunt in the, in the Wind River Valley, you know, from up around du- what's now Dubois and the, the headwaters of the wind. 
down through the area that's now Crowheart and, and down towards Riverton. But the Shoshones always considered this their this was their home. Okay. And the Arapahoes used to come too. They they ran kind of with the Sioux and the Cheyenne. But the Shoshones were really like, you know, Wind River is 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 our homeland. And the way that Crowheart ended up getting its name is the Crows and the Shoshones were were sort of at odds and, and then got into these battles and had this this conflict and they were both taking heavy losses. <clears throat> And Washakie, the leader of the Shoshone tribe, the chief, he sent a messenger to tell the chief of the Crows, okay, we're both taking lots of losses here. Rather than putting our people through this, you and your people, me and my people, why don't you and I just do hand-to-hand and it's going to be winner-take-all. Yeah, let's go at it. Yeah, Yeah. the loser's got to agree to leave. The chief of the Crow had some of his people kill the messenger, literally. So word got back to Washki, and then then it was game on, right? And so they 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 fought, and Washki killed him, cut out his heart. That's how the area Crowheart has its name, Crowheart. So the crows were never here, you know, long term like the Shoshones, but they used to come into this area, as did a lot of other tribes. And the Arapahoes, as I uh, talk about in the film, also have been treated un- unfairly and unjustly. They were promised three different reservations, three different areas that were going to be recognized as theirs. And none of those were ever delivered. And they, they were moving through the Wind River area, asked Washakie if the Arapahoes could stay. He agreed for a temporary reprieve while, while they were going to be moved on, literally supposed to be the next year, and it never happened. Both the Shoshones and the Arapahoes sued the federal government over that and won their cases. Huh. And uh, that's where I talk about in the film where it's yeah. just heartbreaking that they, you know, Grant had given Washki the saddle, but when you look at that settlement from when the Shoshone sued over the Arapahoes being forcibly placed at, at Wind River, which was then the Shoshone Reservation, it wasn't called Wind River, they actually charged Washki for that saddle. Yeah, that, which was, is just, that was a very powerful... Oh, it's just, that's awful. But And that's, you know, again, I keep coming back to this little phrase of that's one tiny example, but that is one tiny example of how... I mean, every tribe in the country has a story like that where they were promised something and just there was just this underhandedness going on the whole time. And it's important to note too, right, that the at least it said it in a very powerful voice as well in the film where I mean, the Arapaho was basically placed with Shoney and they were enemies. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> no, Crawford White, which is one of our most revered leaders on the Arapaho side, said like, you know, on film he's looking at the camera and he said, you know, they placed us here. Traditionally, these are these are our enemies. Yeah, and that's been hard too because it's it's true, right? There, there's still a lot of hard feelings between the two tribes. I mean, we things are better than they've ever been, in my opinion. But but it's still hard yeah. know, to to know that that that's what happened. Yeah, and and it's it's also hard. And I, and I've had I had a recent discussion in regards to this. Um, you know, to as race being the subject. And I was like, one of one of the hardest things for someone like myself who has never faced uh, discrimination or oppression or mm-hmm. is getting over the fact to even have the courage to talk about it because it's intimidating. Because right. you almost, you know, for myself, right, I almost feel like, well, who am I to talk about it? Mm-hmm. But 
now I'm almost coming full circle where it's like, well, if you don't talk about it, then who will? Right. Um, but it's not easy. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not comparing it. I'm just saying, you know, for someone like me, just sits, you know, usually just listens and it's like, well, you don't, you, in my mind, I'm thinking you don't have a right to talk about that. Right. Because you, you haven't faced that. Right. I think in my opinion, white privileges, white privilege is hard to recognize if you're not from a community of color. Mm-hmm. I feel like I learned a, a, a powerful lesson early on from my wife in that regard about gender. I don't remember where we were somewhere, some dinner or something. And, and, and she said, you know, people are like, Oh, you know, Darren, what are you, you know, what are you doing with your degree? And cause we, you know, my wife and I were in that same PhD program. And so I describe, and then, you know, Oh, this is what I'm doing. And, and they're like, and how about you, Kristen? And Kristen's like, you know, I'm a clinical neuropsychologist. And they say, oh, do you work with kids? I thought nothing of that, right? And so we're in the car going home after the dinner and we're chatting. And she said, do you notice how no one asked you if you work with kids? Huh. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, the only reason people ask me that is because I'm a woman. Hmm. It still happens when we meet people that, that don't know much about us. They, you know, for the first time we meet people. And she's 100% right. Yeah. So in that regard, we're all, I think, naive to how there can be bias that just flies right past you. Because I consider myself a pretty well-versed person in in being non-biased, mm-hmm. being able to recognize it. I'm, I didn't... Didn't see that. I didn't see that. Yeah. So I've been able to show her times like, you know, that people say things to me like that I can tell what they really mean. And, and they're, you know, like, oh, oh, how did you get into that Ph.D. program? And what they really want to say is, did you get in because you're an Indian? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah, that stuff happens. And it's tough to it's tough to pick up. You have to have a sharp eye mm-hmm. and a keen ear. And even then, sometimes you won't get it. Yeah, sure. It just, it just flies past. Yeah, it, it's. um I, I don't know much, but I, I do know that talking about it civilly or taking the courage to, you know, even if let's say I come from white privilege, right? Mm-hmm. At least engaging and right. trying to learn more um, is a start. That's the only way it's going to happen. Yeah, it is a start, and 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 without that, it's going it, to it'll never change. And look, it is changing. Things are getting better. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt. That doesn't mean things are easy. I mean, look at when Obama got elected. People are like, oh, well, now, you know, there's a black president. Yeah. Black people can't complain anymore. It's like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Why would you say something like that? Yeah. Right? Um, and I think, but but I think people think that a lot. Yeah. And 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 that's just, that's too bad that you, that, that anyone wants to be that short-sighted. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And there's, you know, and, and, and maybe it's just me, but th- there's a power in your culture that I envy. And, and I'm hopeful, right. That it doesn't, like you said, that these stories continue and, and, and maybe I'm, people might think I'm out there, but you can almost feel it. And I, and I've got to say that like, when, cause I have spent some, you know, not a ton of time, but 
I've put some days in over there, whether it's camping, fishing, some days just even hanging out. Right. Um, there's, there's some history you can feel there. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, for instance, the film, I mean, I, I had no clue that, you know, the reservation started out at 40 million acres. Right. And then was reduced down to two. So, right. so there's a perfect example of something that, you know, here, here I am in the reservation thinking, you know, what an amazing, you know, I often go like my mind wanders, like, you know, back in the day, what was it like? But then all of a sudden, you know, just watching the film and doing some research, I find out that it used to be. That was 45 million acres. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of folks don't realize how much community and society there was in Native people on this continent before Euro-American arrival, right? There's a great book written by Charles Mann. It's, it's The title of the book is 1491. If you haven't read it, you should, you I'm, should check I'm it out. I'm writing it down right now. So the you know the the integrated components of society back then i mean there were cities and trade and you know they didn't have giant skyscrapers but but there were these large areas that a lot of people from clear across the you know what is now the united states tribes in the west coast tribes in the northwest tribes in the southeast would go and travel to and i mean there was a functioning society and you know part of the Part of the governing infrastructure of the United States is based on some of the tribes in the Northeast and the way they governed. Mm -hmm. So I think if people will take the time to stop and think and recognize the contribution of, I, I mean, I, I'll say American Indians, but not not just Indian people. I mean, all people of, of color. Their contributions to this planet and, and society are, are incredible, but there's definitely a bias against them in, in how they're viewed. Um, which is too bad because, yeah. you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot there that, that people are missing out on. And, and I, I really enjoyed making that film because I wanted there to be some attention paid to a you know, an unjust event that has taken place, but also to, to demonstrate that there, that there's hope. I mean, we get a lot of things written about us, uh, at wind river, you know, there was that, that movie wind river, which I was know, gonna, that's one of my questions to it, ask I mean, you about. It was, it was, look, it was a great film because the cinematography was beautiful. The acting was terrific. It was an interesting story, but it was, but it, put this sort of negative portrait of us out there and this vibe that our reservation is all fucked up and everybody's on math and you know, <laughs> yeah, and, the vibe, and, the vibe okay. was not good. And that's, it was dark, yeah. you know, but, but look, I'm not an artist, but I have an appreciation for art. I love the fact that it was, it was, it was a, that was a powerful film. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was bullshit, right? <laughs> I mean, there is no story that fits that there's, they sort of took this, 40 years of history and came up with a sort of amalgam of like, let's tell this as a story about wind river. So I wanted, when we had this idea to make this film tribal waters, I wanted there to be a story about the community, 
and about something that's for us and something that has a positive, uplifting moment. And the idea initially when, when JK from Teton Gravity Research approached me was that Patagonia had wanted to finance a fishing film. And I said, well, I've got this idea for a film and it wouldn't be a short fishing film. There could, we could put some fishing in it because it's part of the story that I have in my mind based on a paper I wrote when I took some classes at the law school at the University of Montana years ago. What do you think of this? And he said, let's pitch it. I think we should see if they're interested. And we did. And they, the film team at Patagonia asked me after this 30 minute presentation, Darren, is there an environmental justice component in this story? <laughs> and I said, the whole story is environmental justice. I said, I, I don't, I'm not really interested in making, I'm definitely not interested in making like a, a commercial, if you will, about my business sure. or about the river, or about the fishing. I have zero interest in that. I am interested in telling you a story. And if you're interested, we could make that story be the, 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 the basis for, for this film. But yeah, the whole thing is environmental justice. I mean, basically I have a river that's being killed. Yeah. And they were like, we're in. Yeah. And, and the part, you know, and I don't want to ruin the movie for those that don't know about it. Everyone should watch it. But the part, part to me, when I was thinking about some of the takeaways are like, and, and you address it in the movie, like we're not, we're not, at, we're not trying to take the water. Right. We're not, we're just want, you know, a balance to be struck so that it can conserve and allow connection via the whole thing. A couple of people have asked me, you know, you, you still are running your, your dad's ranch, like the other ranchers and farmers and stuff, they're going to be pissed at you when they see this movie. And I said, why? Yeah. You, you show me in that film anywhere where I say, well, we should get to take all the water away from Midville and we hope they dry up and burn their crops up and they go away. I don't say anything like no. that because I don't feel that way. No, and what is it, like 250 CFS around yeah. there? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's nothing. And, and you know, in, in the early on in this water litigation, we won the first several rounds, even of the, the, the decision on the adjudication. So the irrigation districts, the, the state irrigators, had to recognize that court decision while this whole thing was on appeal. So they had to have... 252 CFS in the river year round. Yeah. And for people listening, yeah, we're just saying in stream flow in stream year, flow. year round, it can't get below can't a certain below, amount. Yeah. It can't get below 252 cubic feet per second. And you know, cubic feet per second can be sort of the scientific thing where people are like, well, it's confusing. And it, it's been told to me by hydrologists, like think of a basketball. Mm -hmm. That's one cubic foot. Yeah. So at 252, there's 250 basketballs floating along. Right. So it's, it's <laughs> That's a, a good some, visual something yeah. to think about. So that's not that much water. And in that year where they had to recognize that initial decision by the district court, they had as good a crop as they'd had in 30 years. <laughs> so clearly it didn't, there was nobody harmed by the year that they had to follow our, our request to leave that much water in the river that could be done again. You know, the U S fish and wildlife representative that's in the movie also, Mike Metzger, he makes the point like, look, there's no reason in today's world with the technology we have that we couldn't become more efficient and clearly leave that much water in the river with electronic head gates and computerized controls at the, <laughs> at the diversions. And, you know, yeah, it's just a matter of getting people on board and saying, look, let's let's do the right thing here. I don't want the. I mean, I grew up with a lot of those kids that that are now well, we were all kids together. They're now my age running ranches and farms out in the Midvale area. I don't want them to lose their livelihood, but I just don't want us to not be able to get what's ours either. 
And there's a, there is a way for us to do both. Absolutely. And I think the bias, right. And the, and the resistance to change, which, I mean, let's face it, right. It's, it's a little bit in human nature, right. I mean, you, you start talking about change and you know, the defenses come up immediately and right. hopefully people back off. But you know, that, that when <laughs> this guy, Bill Brown, I, I, I didn't have time to, to research him, but wow, you want to talk about an example? I mean, water, if you don't grow it or, or mine it, it it's a there's no, nothing else yeah. here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah the and, Indians were never here. <laughs> the Buffalo, they should have been gone. And then, you know, as you were saying, I mean, the, the, you know, going towards, uh, you know, having some hope and, and generations to come. I mean, you know, that part about recreation in Wyoming, um, $1.6 billion. I mean, almost 5% of the gross economic activity. And imagine if the, you know, there was the reluctance to change was dropped a little and that was actually promoted. Right. I mean, how, how far could that move a needle, especially in a time of climate issue? Right. right. right? I mean, well, I think, you know, I make the point in the film that we have these incredible resources that we could be utilizing to the benefit of our community and the benefit of everyone getting people there's, there's nothing bad about getting people out and being active and getting them out in the woods and in the back country and hiking and mountain biking and fishing and riding horses and whatever people choose to do. And it would be a great opportunity for members of either or both tribes to have small businesses. It would be uh, sustainable Right. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a, it's a resource that's there that we could be using that we're not drilling or cutting or, and if we do it right, it, you know, it, it's kind of like the, the thinking that I had when I started recognizing that, that the model for this fishing and rafting company could work if we, if we protected it and did it right. And I attribute this to him. I don't know that he ever said this. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but, but it's kind of like Yvonne Chouinard in, in Patagonia early on. He wanted to build the best products and do the least harm. Mm-hmm. And so that's the way I think of, of this hope for this film that it'll promote within our community. We can do some, some really good things and some powerful things and get some people involved from our community and they don't have to go away to live somewhere else. They can, they can do it right at home and, and, and help and promote our, our resources, but protect them. Yeah, and protect the culture. Them. And protect yeah. the culture. Absolutely. And you look at how, you know, I mean, the how close, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. just you probably noticed it driving around here. <laughs> There's plenty of people passing through the Yellowstone. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so, so I floated down in the canyon yesterday with, with Mike Jensen, as I told you earlier. And the whitewater trips are still, they're still running people down the river. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and this is September, right? Yeah. Post, post Labor Day. And... For us, Labor Day is usually when we stop running whitewater trips just because there's just, you know, there's nobody around. There, Yeah, there's still a lot of people around here. Yeah. And we could have a very similar thing at Wind River. I mean, the, just the, the, the backcountry stuff and and uh, the sightseeing and the interpretiveness that, that we could offer. Interpretiveness, I'm not sure that's a word, but, you know, <laughs> doing interpretive tours and, and sharing a little bit of our history and who we are and, and what a beautiful culture and a celebrated history we have that we should be 
we are proud of that, but we should be able to share and promote. Yeah. And, and even off the water, right? I mean, as someone like I like to ride mountain bikes. So, you know, if there was a, a program, right. Right. Where I could come over there or let alone birders, hikers. I mean, there, there's plenty of stuff. Absolutely. All all over. So I was in the mountain bike shop in Lander. um, Oh, earlier this summer buying a mountain bike for my youngest son and right here on the on the counter as i'm paying for this bike there's a rack card for a guy in lander who has started a tour company actually it's a shuttle company it's a better word all he does he's got a couple of these 14 passenger vans just like we use for our whitewater trips he just shuttles people around the lander area all summer on mountain takes them up to the loop road and up to lewis lake and here and there in the lander area for all these different mountain bike trails. So he'll pick you up at your hotel. You throw your bike on his rack. He drops you off. There you go. And keeps, helps you keep track. He's got an app on his phone where you can, you know, if you're getting in trouble, you can get in touch with him and they can come back. And if you get a tire or you break down, but yeah, so there's a business right there. We could be doing the exact same thing on the reservation. Absolutely. There's no doubt. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. I mean, that's, I've got to say, you know, as I was watching the film, like halfway through, I'm like, wow. I mean, I was getting a little like, um, so with the kids at the end, I mean, you know, all of the Washakis kin, I mean, that was, it was very, very uplifting. And just talking to you about this right now, I mean, it's, um, it's always good to have hope. I mean, it's right. It's why uh, we fish. Every day. <laughs> you know I mean? like, exactly. going to be the day. <laughs> I think those scenes at the end with those young ladies is, <clears throat> it's gotta be one of the most powerful moments in that film. Absolutely. I think the, um, I think we hit the the nail on the head right there with what we were hoping to accomplish with having like a, um, a moment of clarity about hopefulness for the future. And, and, you know, just thinking about, I was, I'm, I'm trying to think back 23 when my dad and I started, right? And I mean, it's been a it's been, it's been a great journey. There's no doubt. There's definitely some bumps, as there should be on any journey that's worth taking. But um, the opportunities are there for some folks in our community, and 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 a number of folks. I mean, there's a lot of opportunities. It's not like there's one or two. There's a ton of opportunities for somebody to come along that's interested, like you said, in mountain biking or birding or, I mean, you know, the, not just the Rocky mountain headquarters, but the world headquarters for Knowles is in Lander, which is five miles from the reservation. Yeah. I mean, we could be doing so many things with so many of our resources and there's, there's people who want to help and, and have it be for the wind river tribes and they want to just help get it going. We should be doing that. Yeah, Absolutely. And from my seat, right? I mean, what was, I didn't even think about this until right now. I mean, I watched the movie yesterday, rewound it, took some notes, kept doing that. And then I went in and I sat down with my kids and I was like, I'm going to show you a part of this film where this little girl talks about the importance of the resources at hand where she lives on the Indian reservation. And they, you know, they're, they're young enough. They don't understand those concepts. But I guess my point being is that 
there's a step I can take to plant that right. seed, to right. teach them a little bit of the history so that when we do go over there next time, they could get a little bit at a time. Right. It's interesting to think about from a kid's perspective. So the film, the day it was released, I told my wife, we're going to sit the boys down. We're, we're going to watch this together. And she's like, yeah, I think, you know, we should. You know, they didn't want to get off TikTok. They didn't want to get off of Fortnite <laughs> or whatever else they were doing with their phones and their their computers. And so I had to say, look, we're going to sit down. We're going to watch this. That's what's going to happen for the next hour. And as much as my kids bitched and complained and were mad that I was making them sit down to watch something, about five minutes in, I'm like, you know, I'd already seen it 5,000 times at this yeah. point through editing and stuff. So I'm like glancing over. I keep glancing over at them and they were like glued to the screen. That's cool. And as you know, it's 40, what, 49 minutes and change. There were a couple of times where they asked me questions as the film was going, but, but basically they didn't say anything. They just, they just watched. And at the end they both were like, wow, dad, that was really good. You know, and then a minute later, like, can I go back to my computer now? But for a moment, and I think with your kids, this is important. It definitely captured them. Yeah. And so saying you're not, I mean, I, I, again, another guess, right? But I would guess that the impact of that is grand. I hope so. Whether it's now, a decade from now, two decades, but it, a guess, but I would, I'd probably put some money on it. Yeah, no, I, I think so. I think for, for the moment it, it captured him and, and, and I, I agree with you I hope at some point that it circles back like whether it's a month or 10 years or, or hell maybe it's when I'm gone yeah that they come back to that and, and realize I mean we're all here for such a short time <laughs> right in the big picture and we forget that and I tell people and that's another thing about that whole conservation piece and, and only putting one one boat in each section of the canyon each day it's like we're here for such a short time. Why, why would you want to just like fuck it all up? Yeah. But I don't think that we as a society or as a species think that way collectively. I think people are like, well, let's cut these trees down and we'll let somebody else figure out how to grow some other ones. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And look, I mean, on, on the one hand, I mean, I get it. I have an iPhone and I drive a diesel pickup truck and all this stuff too. But, but I do think at times I, I got to try to do better and do my part. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's not easy. Uh, it, it really, you know, shocked me. One of the prior podcasts I did, I'm, and I'm about to ask you the same thing, but I, I asked someone, you know, who's one of the most interesting people you've ever met? And um, it was Doug Tompkins, and he uh, it was Hal Hutchinson, and he started describing um, how he was sitting listening to him in regards to conservation and he started talking about, well, you know, a, a national park in Patagonia that no, no humans were allowed in mm -hmm. like that level. And I was like, Whoa, that's a whole, you know, my mind was like, hold on, say that again. So like it's conserved, but no one's allowed to see it. And he's like, yeah, no, no human presence, just conserved for nature. Right. And I was like, wow, that is, <laughs> Have you ever, that, that, that that, is... that's out there for sure. But why not? Yeah. Have you ever seen that poster? Gosh, I'll, I'll have to, I'll have to track down a copy of this and frame it and put it in my office, but it's basically, it's a, it's a, a, 
a series of, of pictures. Well, there's two pictures and the top of it shows, um, this like beautiful area, right? And the other, maybe it's, maybe it's left to right that you're, that you're looking at the visual. I can't remember if it's left, right or top to bottom, but anyway, one side is beautiful, flourishing fish jumping out of the stream and birds in the trees and, you know, just vibrant and, and just absolutely Garden of Eden-esque, right? The other side is this barren landscape. The river's all dried up. The trees are like, you know, falling down. <laughs> all the plants are dead and dried up. And the side that says, that's like beautiful, it says, or excuse me, I have that reversed. The side where things are barren and, and it's a- Mordor. Like this, right, yeah. <laughs> it says, if bees go extinct. Then the side where things are absolutely like, you know, flourishing and everything. And it said, if humans go extinct. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's true. Like, wow. If we kill yeah. the bees off. Yeah. We're fucked. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's, um, you know, the, it, it's, it's grand. I mean, the, the whole, the whole thing, it's, it's, um, it's a lot to take in. I, I'm, I'm very thankful that I, you know, got to see it, got to research it, got to look. And I mean, you know, it's, it's no different. I mean, this is, I guess, my version mm -hmm. of that. Right. I mean, and people are always said, why are you going to do this? And I said, well, I learn. Right. right. And I'm, and if I stop learning, I'm in trouble. Right. Um, and you know, if someone gave me access to the people that were involved in my father's life, you know, so, you know, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's interesting that you say that about, about, or thinking back about your father, because I, I know you and I are in that same uh, boat of having lost our fathers. You know, when I put my dad's eulogy together, I did a, we did a visual, you know, a little uh, memorial video. And I had a lot of my extended family members send me pictures of my dad that I'd never seen. Wow. <clears throat> it was really powerful because I now feel like I know a part of my dad. I never knew, even though I spent 54 years with him Yeah, or, you know, the most part of that time. And as I was putting this video together and, you know, trying to set it to music and stuff. And I was just like, wow, look at my dad. Yeah. He's this young, like in some pictures, this little kid, another, these like young teenager and, and this young man sitting with my mother and has got me on his lap and, it was just, I'd never seen some of those photos, right? Yeah. It was powerful. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's, I guess it's, for me, it's one of those things where I do, I have this weird relationship with technology where I'm, you know, it, it, there's a lot of times where I'm like, I just, I just wish I could throw the fucking phone in the lake. You know <laughs> right. what I mean? And then it's, then I get, and then I've had some really, really interesting con conservations with people conversations with people when they're like why don't you turn it for the better i'm like what are you talking about and they're like well why don't you why don't you take it just as technology right like same thing looking at marijuana as just a plant and use it and i'm like well one one thing I, you know and then again i mean as as i've told you and you know sorry for your loss and but right. you, you know i struggled i mean i was a i was a mess and i've i've probably said that too many times but you know, so what could I learn from it? Well, what could I learn from it? It was like, I, 
I hit blocking points when I try to find out more about my dad and I've told my kids, I'm like, uh, you know, they said, well, you know, they are on the podcast once a year and then, um, and it's a catalog for you, whether or not you ever listen to it, that's up to you. But, um, these are all people I know or have wanted to know and, and stories and stuff that I respect and I have interest in and you get a pretty good picture of me, hopefully, you know, if I, right. if I keep at it. <laughs> right. right. No, uh, I think that's a great idea. And what a, what a legacy to live for your kids. It's a, it's a little catalog, like you said, that they'll have. That's awesome. Yeah. I hope, uh, well, I mean, I, it's, it's extremely as evidence today. I mean, it's wildly fulfilling, right. You know, and it's and the, the, the scales are tipped at the, at the fulfillment learning, you know, compared to the pain in the ass of, of getting ready and getting it all done. So, right. right. Uh, and hopefully it, it remains the same. Right. Um, the, um, your, your passion for team, team roping. I just, just wanted to touch on that real brief. Cause I didn't, that's sure. another thing that I have interest in that I've never really right. kind of talked to you about. Is that, was that from growing up around horses or? Yeah. I mean, I grew up on our ranch there in Crowheart and I, I got interested in, in team roping cause you know, you're around cows and horses all the time and it's just one of those things you, you, you start to pick up. And my dad was a, was a rodeoer. I mean, he rode bulls and he rode Bronx, uh, saddle, saddle bronc and bareback horses. And he was a calf roper and a team roper. And I just saw that stuff early on as a little kid. And you know, we're all influenced by somebody. Uh, hopefully it's a parent or a positive figure. And, and, um, I wanted to be just like that. You know, I wanted to ride and rope and do all those things. And so I started at a very young age and it has always been with me. I just absolutely loved it. When I first got to Missoula as a graduate student, I didn't, I didn't take any, no horses or anything with me. Right. And, and I just, I was really unhappy in Missoula. Missoula is a much different climate than I grew up in. Right. Crowheart's the eastern slope of the winds. It might be windy and cold all the time, but you see the sun in the blue sky just about every day. Yeah, I mean, it may snow a foot and blow like hell, and but a couple days later, I guarantee you the sun's going to come out and it's going to be blue sky and sunshine. And Missoula is very northwestish compared to that <laughs> rain and drizzle and gray skies. And I was just like, what the fuck am I getting myself into? <laughs> this place is depressing. So that year that I was ready to just sort of bail on it, talk to my dad and. I met a friend uh, and made friends with with a, a good friend of mine from Missoula, Carl Tyler, who's a owns a big Chevrolet dealership. And he said, "Well, shoot, you ought to bring your horses with you." And I said, "I don't have any place to keep them. I mean, I'm a student." He said, "You can keep them at my place." Hmm. So I brought my horses to Missoula my second year, and I found a spot for myself. Right, I met some other folks who roped and started meeting some people who fished and I just kind of found a I found a niche that fit yeah and I had then I absolutely loved Missoula and I really enjoyed being in graduate school at that point it was a point where I was learning a lot of stuff and getting a lot of neat opportunities but that piece of me that I was kind of missing I brought along and sort yeah. of completed a little bit more of having having who I needed to be in that point in my life be there with me and so I've always been, I, I've loved horses since I was just a little kid. I just always found them like, you know, fascinating and interesting. And, and so it's just been kind of a natural transition. I've always had them with me. And, and like you growing up playing sports and doing things, I've always been very competitive. 
And so team roping is a way to continue to be competitive at something, even though I'm, you know, I'm mid fifties now. Yeah. Um, and I absolutely love it. I mean, I used to joke with faculty, you know, cause you have your, your mid year and your end of the year evaluations as a graduate student. They used to say, so what are you doing this summer? And I'm sure all the other graduate students are like, well, I'm going to work on a poster and I'm going to yeah. go to this conference. <laughs> and I said, I'm going home, I'm going to fish and I'm going to rope all summer. <laughs> and, uh, and it took me longer to get through the PhD program because I did that over the summers, but that's part of who I am. Yeah. That's and, and, and just, just to go into the, the actual logistics around the team, like, so what walk me through the, so the event. Yeah. Like how, so team roping is an event where you got two, two guys or two, two participants because women are big into team roping too. So you have two participants on a horse, you go into an arena and there's a there's there's an alleyway and, and, a, and a chute that a steer is put into, and and one guy or gal is sitting on the left side of the steer, and the other person is on the right side of the steer, and they nod their head, which is quote, called calling for the steer. The guy running the gate opens the gate. The steer goes running down the arena. You chase after him with the horses. The person on the on the left ropes the steer, hopefully around the horns or at least around the neck, somewhere by the head slows them down and then starts turning their horse to the left going across the arena and the other person is that's the header mm -hmm. and then the other person is the healer they come in from the backside and they get behind the steer and the challenge there is to rope the two back feet and then to stop the steer and then the clock stops it's a timed event so when the gate opens and the steer starts running a stopwatch is turned on and it's scored on how quickly you can do that okay so how quickly you can bring that run to a stop. That's called finishing the run. And there's other little things like, you know, if you get the steer around both horns, it's a clean head catch. If you get it by a half head, like one horn and around the nose, that's a half head. There's no penalties on that end unless you, you know, rope, the rope goes over the front legs or something. But on the back end, the idea is you have to rope both feet. If you only get one foot, you get a five second penalty. Okay. So it's, it's an event that really evolved out of doctoring cattle on a ranch. Mm -hmm. right so somebody would have to rope this rope a big cow or calf or steer and then someone would have to rope the back feet because when you would do that and the ropes come tight and the steer's back legs are back they often will fall on their side yeah, and the doctor can, and then the veterinarian or yeah. technician can go running out there and give them a shot or a bolus or do whatever you need to do or branding when when people brand their cattle yeah. they also will rope them by the head and heels and then it evolved into this sort of competitive thing so that now is you know done for money you pay an entry fee and then however many teams there are it's, it's it's a tournament kind of like the one fly yeah and uh it's a lot of fun I, I absolutely love it i mean i i spend all my time that i can in the winter riding my horses keeping them in shape and roping that's cool yeah i love that's it. that's amazing yeah well i'm glad yeah i'm glad we talked about that. i'm gonna have to check it out sometime let alone some other yeah i'll send you a couple clips of video of stuff i've yeah had. Yeah. i would love, love to see it all right well i've taken up uh a lot of your time and I appreciate that, but, but I do want to, I did want to, I give you the heads up. I did want to ask you who, who's one of the most interesting people you ever met and, and why? I got to tell you, that's, I mean, that's a thoughtful question. And I think about that question a little bit like my wife, when I ask her, what's your favorite movie? She, she is the kind of person who will not answer that because she just feels like that's an unfair Right. Like, yeah. I, I it, just, I can't tell you that. And I'm like, yes, you can. She's like, no, I can't quit asking me. And that's or, why I've changed it from like who is right. to who is one, one of. <laughs> right. 
But I think that is a thoughtful way to ask that question. You know, I mean, I've met a lot of people in my life. Um, yourself, Tom Brokaw, Jane Fonda, David Schuldberg. These are just all sort of random people. Of course, people know who Tom Brokaw and Jane Fonda are. But, And I think probably one of, certainly one of the most interesting people I've ever met was a... a A lawyer he's a professor of law at the University of Montana he's from the Fort Berthold reservation in North Dakota which is the three affiliated tribes the Mandan the Hadats and the Arikara and his name is Raymond Cross <clears throat> he's an interesting <clears throat> excuse me he's an interesting person because he's extremely smart but he's and, and very accomplished. I mean, he argued three cases before the U.S. Supreme Court for his tribe, won all three of them. <laughs> Exceptionally smart. I'm talking like wicked smart. I mean, I'm, you know, being in a Ph.D. program, I was around a lot of people who were very smart, but this guy is something else. He would ask these really complicated, thoughtful, but complicated and difficult questions of us when we were in his class. I, took, I, I was fortunate enough to be allowed to take a few classes at the law school because I was in the psychology program, not, not law. But, and yet he would do it in a way that was like gentle and inviting and intimidating at the same time. Hmm. And having a conversation with him, I mean, this is somebody, again, who grew up on, on an Indian reservation in North Dakota and went to Yale Law School. It was clear that he was just like absolutely brilliant, but very thoughtful and very thoughtful of sort of the, the, human, the humanistic piece behind these like big, complicated law cases that he'd been involved in. But also very like mindful of resources and, and, and not just like resources in terms of, you know, water and timber and other things, mining, but, but human capital, like hmm. what does it take for people to do things for their people? Or it's just, a, he was just an interesting fellow. And it was the thing, the, the reason I describe him the way I do is because he was so understated and, and humble and soft spoken mm -hmm. in a conversation with him, I would often have to kind of lean in because I, I couldn't hear him. And I'd say, Ray, I, I can't hear you. And so he'd, he'd raise his voice a little bit, but, but I just, I found it fascinating that he was so smart and so accomplished, but just so chill and reserved. And like I said, understated and, and humble, Yeah, you know, I think his humility was probably what, probably what impressed me as much as his, 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 um, his knowledge. His knowledge and yeah. his expertise. And he probably, you, you mentioned it just a second ago, but you said intimidating or? So it was intimidating because I know he knew all the <laughs> answers in the case law and everything to what he was asking you. Yeah. And it was like, in a way he was asking, have you done your reading that I assigned? But he was also asking like, what is your opinion and what do you think about this? Mm -hmm. In a way that was not just like, well, I remember reading that so-and-so said this, but he was like, have you thought about this? Yeah. Because I want to know what you think about it. I'm I hope you read it because you're never going to be able to answer these questions <laughs> if you haven't. 
And by the way, you're also not going to be able to answer these questions if you can't tell me what you think about it. Yeah. I, I found that fascinating because, you know, in any college class, you're going to be assigned tons of reading and you're not going to do most of it. Nobody does. You just try to figure out a way to get by. Yeah. But in these classes, then, then, it, then it motivated me to want to read that stuff because, you know, like dry reading is sort of, that's, that's the thing in, in law school. I've never been a full-on law student, but in the classes I took, you know, I was reading some of this case law, just the way lawyers write. I'm like, oh my gosh, this, yeah. no wonder they charge so much. But, they had to read all this shit. <laughs> somebody, had turned, somebody had to teach them how to write this stupid-ass way. But uh, his, his thoughtfulness was just always impressive. And so, you know, I, I quote him in the film. I don't know that I attributed this to him, but, but he said to me, the challenge for you at Wind River is you guys have this tremendous resource that's better than a gold mine, but you have to figure out a way to utilize it. Mm -hmm. And that's the water. Yeah. And I think a lot about like that story that I told through the film is a story I developed in his class. Cause that's what I wrote my paper about was like, you know, Shoshone and Arapaho tribes have this 535,000 acre feet award of water from the Supreme Court. Well, what happened to all that water? Yeah. So that was the impetus for the for the idea that I pitched to Patagonia when we wanted to make this film. And it's, I have to attribute at least a part of that. Like the story was there in my head of like, ah, oh, we've got this water and we can't use it and stuff. But also trying to think about it at the next level <clears throat> in a more comprehensive manner, I would have to attribute at least a good portion of that to Ray. Yeah, well, it's just amazing how through that question and what we've been talking about, that the whole thing is like a full circle. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of wild. Absolutely. That's um, it's 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 big stuff to think about. That's that's for sure. Yeah, and and uh, <clears throat> you know, we come across a lot of interesting people in our life, and I think I think when Steve Jobs passed. I think, I think it was Obama that, I don't know if he gave his eulogy because I don't think they had a big service for him. But, but anyway, I think Obama spoke about him one time and said something to the effect of Steve Jobs had said his goal in life wasn't to become like the most wealthy person in the, on the planet, but he wanted to make a dent in the universe. Mm -hmm. And I think about people like Ray that, that have done that, even though they would raise a person who would never admit it. Yeah. Right. But for but for him to have been that powerful <clears throat> of an advocate for his tribe to argue before the Supreme Court, to send students to school, to be a professor of law, I feel like he's one of those people too that probably, you know, could say, Hey, I, I made a, a dent. Maybe it was a small one, but I made a dent in the universe. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. I think that's a that's a uh, that's a real accomplishment. Yeah, and it's funny you say that because you know, in my intro, the, the idea of meaningful conversations from the fringe of societal norms is just that. Right. Right? Like, who are the people that have made these dents or have chosen, um, you know, a way of life that we won't hear about? Right. And so it's, I don't know, it's pretty cool. And I, um, I really do appreciate you, you taking the time to sit down today. 
Well, thank you. I appreciate it too. I appreciate the opportunity. This is definitely, um, it was good. It was good for me to be able to do this. And I feel the same way about having participated in the one fly, you know, it's just like, wow, I'm glad I experienced that. Like I was at the auction the other night, like the trip that I donated sold for an insane amount of money. And it's good because I know that money is going to something that I love, right? The whole yeah. idea of conservation and fishing and so I got up, good Lord, like five o'clock in the morning on Saturday because I was headed over to do my first day on the on the South Fork. And as I was headed over the pass, I'm sort of looking in the mirror and I can see the valley, you know, behind me as I'm going up, up Teton Pass. And it just struck me that, like I said, I, I, I really kind of wanted to back out yeah. of even coming to the one fly. And yet here I am driving over the mountain at five o'clock in the morning to go fish the South Fork. And I just had this moment where I thought, about the auction the night before and the people and the event in general. And I thought, I'm really glad I'm here. And I'm really glad I experienced that last night. And I feel the same way about having gotten to fish with Mike yesterday and getting to hang out with you and Jeff. And just this whole last few days has been very good for me. Yeah. And you've been through a lot. So, you know, I feel for you. I mean, thank you. I appreciate that. And my wife was right. My mom and my dad, both, they'd be like, don't not go on our behalf. Get over there. Like, yeah. Go do this. Yeah, it's it's very funny because, you know, as you and I have talked about recently, in trying to get a little more clarity, getting healthy, et cetera, one thing that I've definitely noticed is, and it's for me, and, and I've been told my brain is very peculiar, but um, <laughs> for me personally, I have a clear barometer, right? The more that something enters into my mind occupies some time some thought Mm -hmm. that i want to avoid or not do Mm -hmm. the more i need to do it right and it's i mean it's i could i could actually you know sit and talk about it for hours but it's just that simple right if it's not something that's going to harm me or that but it's like i mean take it as simple as you know, getting on a bike or working out. It's like, right. All right. Now I've thought about it 10 times today. Just do it. Right. You know, And then afterwards it's like, Oh, or even like I've got anxiety. I should go to this social, you know, I'm not going, I'm not going. I'm not, well, you got to go now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. I, I think that's a great way to look at that. I, I feel the same way. Like I'll be like kind of traipsing around the house, like, Oh, I should do this or that. And I'm like, what? In the time I've been thinking about this, I'd be back already. Right? <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Or I'll be sitting at my desk being like, oh, I'm tired and I'm sore. And I'm like, again, if I got on the treadmill for 45 minutes, you know, I mean, I, you talked about having watched Tribal Waters a few times. I've probably watched it. I don't know how many times, like as it was coming together, I was watching it and we were working on it. But even once it was finished, I mean, I've probably watched it 10 or 15 times because I'll just jump on the treadmill and just pop it on YouTube and watch. Yeah. And before I know it, the thing's 49 minutes long. I'm like, wow, I've been on the treadmill for an hour. Good. Good for me. But again, you you just got to that. just do it. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's the Nike thing and it's simple. It is. And and you could you could make it in your, I, from my mind, I can make it into, you know, a big deal. But it's just now that I've <laughs> clarity, right. I'm like, it's that easy. And I remember in high school, I tried to think about working out when I was running track because I was a, a middle distance runner and some of our workouts were absolutely brutal. I used to remind myself, okay, the next hour and a half is going to be hell, but that hour and a half is going to pass anyway. I might as well be doing something that's good for me. Yeah. You know? And as I get, you know, a little longer in the tooth, 
it's amazing how that now spawns better thoughts or thinking for me. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. <laughs> a lot of things are simple, right? Yes. Well, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, to find for more information about Darren, head on over to windrivercanyon.com and on Instagram at, uh, at Wind River Canyon. And to watch Tribal Waters, just put in Patagonia Tribal Waters and it'll, it'll pull right up. Um, right. Anywhere else people can yes. reach you? Um, they can certainly look at that Instagram page. Um, through the web, through windrivercanyon.com they they can email me on there if they want it goes to the general account but then those the, the shop folks filter it back to me so that, that's that's Excellent. an option too yeah and thanks for having me i really appreciate no, this mike it was uh it was amazing um hope you enjoyed this episode of permit to think my hope is this podcast offers meaningful conversations and stories from the fringe of societal norms be sure to subscribe and support the podcast by leaving a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform you use. For more information, please head on over to the website at permittothink.com and forward this show to anyone in your network who you feel might dig it. I am out. <laughs> <laughs>